Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This Ed Talk focuses on nurturing and responsive environments that promote social and emotional well-being. Our featured speaker is Dr. Clay Cook. Clay is the John and Nancy Payton Faculty Fellow in Child and Adolescent Well-Being at the University of Minnesota and Associate Professor in the School Psychology Program. Clay co-founded the School Mental Health Assessment Research and Training Center at the University of Washington and is a core faculty member within the Institute of Translational Research in Children's Mental Health at the University of Minnesota. In addition to his research, he consults with several school and community systems throughout the U.S. to improve practices and outcomes for students to meet the demands of civic work and home life. This Ed Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on December 4th, 2017. Thank you. I feel like I need to have a drink in my hand on this stage. It's like... This is the coolest uh, place I've ever presented at. Most school districts actually aren't this cool. Uh, So I'll hold it, I'll eat the mic. So can you indulge me for uh, a moment and just close your eyes and go ahead and raise your right hand. And go ahead and open your eyes. I just wanna see if I can make you actually do that. And and we have a lot of people, I guess, if. Addressing kids' social-emotional needs was that easy. I think uh, we wouldn't be standing here today. I want to talk a a little bit about social-emotional needs. How many of you know an adult who can't manage their emotions well? (laughs) Such as anger. How many of you know an adult who could read well, do math, has the basic kind of foundations of science and technology, but can't maintain healthy relationships? Social-emotional skills are the best predictors of life success. That's what we know from longitudinal studies. Social-emotional skills enable, they're enabling factors that allow individuals to profit from their learning experiences and go and move and shake in life in ways to be successful. If you look at social-emotional skills, what goes into them, they actually serve as the foundation for self-regulation. So what's self-regulation? How many of you think self-regulation kind of matters? Here's the definition. (laughs) Woo to (laughs) self-regulation. I've never heard a woo to self. But it should be wooed. More than other things that get wooed. But self-regulation is really the ability for someone to keep their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors or actions in check as they pursue something that's like not immediately attainable. It's delayed gratification. Social-emotional learning and skills go into that. When we look at it, it's called the Pareto's Law of the Vital Few. Is anybody familiar with Pareto's Law? So this is also called the 80-20 distribution. And what the law says is that in a given setting, the majority of problems that are encountered are explained by a small subset of factors. 
This happens to be true. This law holds true in child development. The vast majority of social, emotional, and academic problems we see are explained by a small set of environmental conditions. The same environmental conditions. Overly harsh and punitive discipline. Environments characterized by trauma and adversity, such as abuse and neglect all the way to environments that fail to provide exposure to meaningful experiences that enable kids to acquire the necessary skills to manage life in themselves. So when we think about it, it's the same environmental conditions that explain the vast majority of our problems. So let's think about this, healthy environments. It establishes the conditions in which all humans thrive. Let's imagine elderly in assisted living arrangement. Where do you think they're gonna live longer and have a higher quality of life? Which side of this slide? Now let's go to preschool age kids. Where do you think they're more likely to acquire school readiness, on the right or the left? Let's imagine teachers. Where do you think their performance is gonna be optimized? They're more likely to stick around, the right or the left? So we know this is an all human proposition. There's ways of us thinking about the types of environments we want to create. And so if we want to optimize kids' social, emotional, and de development, it's about creating nurturing and responsive host environments. So what's a host environment? A host environment is the place and settings that kids can directly experience. Those host environments kids interact with, interact with they can touch, feel, they're most proximal to them. Given their proximity to children, they're most influential. Host environments are homes, they're community settings in which kids regularly interact, and they're school environments. So if we look at cultivating and building nurturing and responsive environments where the kids naturally exist, we stand a chance of promoting the social emotional well-being as enabling factors for life and personal success. So let me define nurturing environment. Really a nurturing environment is one that's characterized by care and compassion. It involves secure, healthy, attached relationships that cultivate a sense of belonging and safety. It's about high expectations and adequate structure. And we often find within many nurturing environments, there's a lack of healthy limit setting. So children learn the boundaries within which they need to behave. This is about teaching consequences for behavior in a highly nurturing way, not a punitive manner. So what's responsive? Responsive is about attending to and responding to the developing needs of a child. So there's really two qualities of a responsive environment. Number one, the environment pro provides children with access to the experiences that are necessary for them to develop the social, emotional, and academic skills that enable them to meet the demands, and I mean the three places where they need to meet demands. That's civic life, that's work life, and that's home life. How many of you are familiar with the ACES study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study? What we know is that a lot of ACEs have inertia to them, and they will replicate themselves. So it's about children being able to acquire the skills to not replicate that from happening into the future. Here's the point I'm going to make. We've spent decades of research 
conducted decades of research and billions of dollars to develop a robust scientific knowledge base on how to prevent social, emotional, and academic problems from ever happening. We have a wealth of policies, programs, and practices that we can adopt and implement to create nurturing and responsive environments. We know how to do this, to address the common environmental conditions that if not attended to and intentionally addressed, they will cultivate social, emotional, and academic problems. And we can react to them on the back end. We have an issue. It's called the science to practice gap. How many are familiar with it? What you're seeing here is what's called the 17-year odyssey. It takes 17 years for 14% of scientific findings to make their way into everyday environments. It just so happens findings don't crawl out of journals and bring themselves to life in everyday environments. On top of that, the 14% of scientific findings that make their way into everyday practice in healthcare and schools and community settings, they're often insufficiently delivered. What that means is kids can't benefit from things they don't receive if they're not implemented well. This is why in modern day we have an emerging science of implementation. It's called implementation science. The entire field is a multidisciplinary field that's dedicated to seeking solutions to the science to practice gap. So we have a lot of what happens is you build a community clinic or you create a website with information and the belief is that they will come. The field of dreams approach doesn't work. If you build it, they don't come. We know, for example, in the area of school-based mental health, that's where a lot of my research focuses on in implementation science. Only 14% of kids who have a mental health need access it when the services are delivered outside of schools. Over 80% of kids, if you set up and deliver mental health services in schools, over 80% of kids who have a need receive those supports. So when we think about it, we gotta go beyond field of dreams. We need to be setting up shop in the places where kids regularly show up and exist. Where are they? That's where you need to deliver it. They show up to primary care settings. It's called integrated behavioral health. They show up to schools. Schools are the hub of communities. They are the ideal place for children and families to access. Access alone is not going to help us. It's access of high quality supports. That's where science comes in. Because a lot of things kids access are of insufficient quality to address their needs. This is one of my favorite quotes. If you've heard me talk, I've, I've quoted this. Prevention requires an investment. When we do surveys and we ask, do you believe in prevention? What do you think the majority of people will say, regardless of the aisle they're on? Yes. But what happens is, when it comes to an investment, and there's the quote is, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget, because I'll actually tell you what you value. It, prevention requires an investment across multiple levels. From a policy level, it requires investment to create the funding realities. In the classroom or in the home environment, it's an investment of behavior. Usually it's proactive, prevention-oriented behaviors. When we think about delivering scientifically validated practice, it's kind of a faith-based endeavor. You're willing to invest in those behaviors in order to reap dividends on the back end. 
How many of you are affiliated in some way with early childhood education? How long might it take to really see the fruits of that labor? We might not see it until the kid graduates from high school. So it is about investment regardless of the level the person functions at. So when we think about cultivating, nurturing, and responsive environments, it becomes an investment, a financial investment and a behavioral investment. Who are the most dynamic, interacting, moving, talking aspects of children's environments? Adults. So when we talk about creating uh, nurturing and responsive environments, we are now in the business of adult behavioral change. That's it. We're in the science of human behavior change. If we want to create nurturing and responsive environments, it's about changing adult behavior. Because kids only get better when the environment changes. And who can change their environments for them? It's the adults. How many of you noticed that service delivery settings are fragmented and often delivered siloed care? Let's think about the, the, the even bringing in a mental health provider into school to deliver needed mental health supports, but the person doesn't coordinate their actions with the educational staff. It's going to undermine the effectiveness of that care. What we need is a whole child perspective and mindset where we try to break down silos and recognize that the service and care we deliver impacts and interacts with other domains of well-being and performance. How many of you got rotten sleep last night? How good of a version of yourself are you today? How many of you are ill? Kind of, you don't, it's like, you might not want to raise your hand. It's like, <laughs> me, I am, you want to drink? It's like, <laughs> how many of you notice that could impact academic functioning? How about social dynamics? Can a problem with a teacher undermine a student's motivation? Can that create and lead to more behavior problems? Can strong, healthy relationships promote the kid's ability to regulate their emotions? Can it be facilitative of academic? So we know we have a whole human in front of us. When it comes to providing care and creating nurturing and responsive environments, it's tending to all kids' needs holistically. I think about it as a recipe, what we're trying to do. Many organizations, places, host environments have really good ingredients, but they don't got the full recipe. But they think they should get the end result. You have a good ingredient. Yes, good for you. Your relationships are good. Relationships are alone are not sufficient to promote kids' social-emotional development and skill acquisition. How many of you have noticed a teacher who's super good at building relationships but not so good at instruction? How many of you have noticed someone who's really good at instruction but not so good at relationships? What are we actually going for? We're going for both. And everybody's going to have relative strengths and weaknesses. When we think about optimizing, it's really considering the ingredients that we have to combine together that produce the end result. Because no single ingredient alone is sufficient to achieve the outcomes we want. It's not that simple. 
So let's think about what are the evidence-informed ingredients. And I like to think about the ingredients. They, we will never reach a point in society where these will become a bad idea. It's not like in the year 2050, some of these ingredients are going to become a really dumb idea and we need to change course. So let me go over some of these ingredients. How many of you think a key ingredient is to create a safe, structured, positive, and predictable environment? Now we've got to figure out the methodology and we actually know some of the methodology to make it happen. We know how to make it happen. If the adults, we can get the adults to change their behavior. We know how to do this. How many of you think it will never become a bad idea? We, in the year 2050, we need to create unsafe, unstructured, negative environments that are highly improved, and it's going to be good. I mean, it's going to be really good for kids. How many of you agree? That's, we're going to stick around. So an investment, here's the investment. An investment here is never going to become a bad idea. How about relationships, investing in relationships? Nope, by the year 2050, insecure relationships that are characterized by mistrust, lack of connection, and uncertain belonging is going to be good for kids. Any investment we put into building and cultivating relationships. How many of you have a kid of your own? How many of you rigorously receive training on how to be a parent and build a nurturing and response prior to having a kid? How many of you have a driver's license? But you got that. How many of you have received lessons to like bowl or golf or do something? But you got that under your belt. We have an interesting society in terms of we have needs out there. The adults have needs. So we have to take a nurturing and supportive approach and figure out what the adults need to, in order to shift their behavior to make some of these things happen. How about teaching and modeling? Do kids need to learn how to function in a world? What are they born with? Instincts. Everything else must be learned. If we don't teach them how to read, what will happen? How about social skills? How about emotion regulation? At any point in the human's development, if they don't possess a skill they need to meet the demands, we got to find ways to teach and model those skills. Agency. Nurturing and responsive environments promote sense of agency for the child. Mainly, it gives, we have to create a sense of purpose and meaning and future orientation. We conduct studies. The average middle schooler has no future orientation. You ask them, and you know what a middle schooler will say when you ask them? What do you want to do with it? I don't know. What if you ask them again, what do you think? I don't know. And then the adults think they're lying, but they're actually telling the truth. They don't have, what does it mean when you're not orienting towards the future? People are going to get their immediate needs met. Sense of agency means kids are motivated, they're future oriented, and they have a sense of purpose and meaning behind their lives. This is where the internal stuff comes from. And we know, we have known evidence-based practices to do that. So here's how we think about it, organizing what a responsive and nurturing environment in a school. Tier one is what all kids get. We need to cultivate, make sure every single kid has access to meaningful relationships. These, this model can be extended outside of schools. School-wide positive behavior interventions and supports. It's about having, outlining high uh, expectations around behavior, teaching those behaviors, 
creating an acknowledgement and recognition systems, but also outlining and creating and setting healthy limits and responding to problem behavior by respecting the dignity of the kid, but at the meantime, setting a limit and enforcing that limit. Positive relationships, we've helped build the science on this. We've developed a strategy called the Establish, Maintain, Restore approach. It's about establishing, giving uh, adults the skills to establish healthy relationships, giving them the ability to maintain those healthy relationships, and when harm happens due to negative interactions, being able to fix and repair those. Prevention does not happen without screening. So this is a responsive environment. Another part of a responsive environment is early and timely intervention, close to when a problem emerges. How does medicine engage in early intervention? What's it need to do if it's going to do it? It needs to detect the problem, doesn't it? How do we detect problems right when they're emerging so we can be responsive and grant access to a needed support? That's the purpose of screening. But once we screen, it doesn't tell us what to do. We have to have the ability to figure out what the need is and assign and match students to the most appropriate intervention. But this is a model that has a continuum of care, whereby systems such as schools can be responsive to match kids to the level of need they have, and do so within a nurturing approach. I'll just end with, it does take a village, and what I mean, it does take a village, it takes more than schools, it takes the multiple host environments in which kids live to promote their social, emotional, development, well-being. I appreciate your time and I guess, cheers. <laughs> Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks, or to watch Ed Talks videos, or listen to audio podcasts, visit AchieveMPLS.org.